Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your teen requested a ride, but this time, not from you. It's through their Uber teen account. You probably drive your teenager around a lot. They have gymnastics club, science club, rec soccer club, school soccer club, club soccer club, and three-hour clarinet club on Saturday night. Perfect. Now, with an Uber teen account, you can be there even when you can't. It's an Uber account that allows your teen to request a ride under your supervision. They ride with a highly rated driver. And with live trip tracking, you can follow along the whole ride. Thank you. Add your teen to your Uber account today. See app for details. Welcome to NFL Films Tales from the Vault, a weekly podcast where you'll get to hear raw, unedited conversations that have never been heard before in their entirety between the legendary Steve Sable and some of the most interesting and iconic figures in NFL history. I'm your host, Andrea Kramer, and I'll be guiding you through these time capsule interviews, providing context and insight. Now, when I started my career as NFL Films' first female producer, Steve was my boss and mentor. Over his five decades as president of NFL Films, he conducted hundreds of interviews. Today, we head to Titletown, Green Bay, Wisconsin, 1997, where Steve sat down with the newly crowned Super Bowl champion, Reggie White. I actually met Reggie when I was a producer for NFL Films, and he had just signed with the Philadelphia Eagles a few games into the 1985 season. Although he'd won Rookie of the Year honors, he'd already played two seasons with the USFL Memphis Showboats. Reggie was like this larger-than-life man-child with that big smile and signature scratchy voice. What I quickly learned was that he was as kind and genuine off the field as he was relentless and dominating on it. Above all, he was a man of principle in every aspect of his life. The summer after the Packers' Super Bowl victory over New England in New Orleans, Steve traveled to Green Bay to interview Reggie, who was then in his 12th NFL season, at last a Super Bowl champion. So as usual, let me set the scene for you. Now, Steve liked to do interviews in places that defined his subjects. Remember him sitting with Brett Favre on the dock by the bayou? Well, on this hot August day, Reggie and Steve weren't in a pew in church, but rather in the bleachers at Lambeau Field. Now, before Steve gets to Reggie's reflection on finally winning, he dives into Reggie's days with the Eagles, the gangrene defense, Reggie's conflicts with then-Eagles owner Norman Brayman, and his eventual decision to sign with the Packers. 
Reggie, when you go back to when you when you played at the Eagles, you look back and you look at that defense. Jerome Brown, yourself, uh, Joyner, uh, Simmons. That might have been, it could have been one of the greatest defenses of all time. Why didn't you guys win more games when you were with the Eagles? Well, I think it really started up top. You know, we had some great players, uh, some guys that, de that were extremely dedicated to trying to win. Uh, yet it was frustrating every year when we got ready to go to training camp. You know, we didn't have our top guys there. And uh, why was that? Well, it was because of money, yeah. you know, and uh, they didn't have, have their contract signed. And right. Stuff. And uh, so it, it was frustrating because, I mean, to me, training camp is where you build a camaraderie and we can never build our camaraderie. Uh, you know, we went into the season and uh, we ended up playing well at the time. But we could never win the big game. So it was extremely frustrating. And I think that when the team has a commitment from the top to the bottom, it gives them, it gives them an opportunity to win. And. I just don't think that uh, everybody was on the same page in Philadelphia. And what about the fans in Philadelphia? What did you think of them? Because a lot of people would say they're some of the toughest fans, that they're the most ungrateful, they don't know the game, they just criticize. How did you feel about the fans? Well, I think the fans, I mean, particularly people that supported us constantly, I mean, they, uh, they were great. I mean, no one ever treated me with any disrespect when I was out uh, in any kind of way. And they were extremely dedicated to the team. Of course, you had a, your fly-by-night fans yeah. that would come when we won. But uh, the fans were tremendous there in Philly. And I think that it just come, uh, you know, the, their frustration comes from uh, situations, I think, with guys who come in and they buy these teams. And it's frustrating when there's no commitment and then there's not a high, a high level of play, particularly in bigger games, uh, from the teams that are there. So I can imagine they're, they're, they're extremely frustrated. Now, when you, there was a luncheon in Philadelphia when uh, it was a very emotional luncheon, and, and I remember something you said that, that you're not giving up on the Eagles. You said the Eagles are, are giving up on me. What did you mean by that? Well, during that time, I, uh, I think uh, two months before <clears throat> I had come to that luncheon, uh, uh, Mr. Brayman had called me and told me that he was going to make me an offer. Uh, two weeks later, uh, you know, I read in the paper where he said, look, you know, it's time for the Philadelphia Eagles and Reggie White to depart. And to be honest with you, I mean, it, it had gone out of me. I mean, I had no enthusiasm about wanting to be a Philadelphia Eagle again, not because of the fans or the people, because there were like three or 5,000 people that, you know, went downtown. And they had a big to, demonstration yeah. to, to keep you on the team. Yeah, right? and I mean, that was I wanted to go, but it would have been too emotional. And uh, I didn't want to end up making an emotional decision you know, about what I wanted to do. But uh, it, it was just a process of, uh, you know, just everything that was going on there. And, and the Eagles pretty much said, hey, you know, we don't want this guy no more. And uh, which ended up being fine with me because, I mean, I wanted to try to get a new start, you know, and hopefully find a team that would be dedicated to winning. Now, you went on that recruiting tour. Now, what were some of the things that some of the, the teams did to try to convince you to, to, to play with them. I, I think in uh, Atlanta, didn't you meet the governor? Yeah, I, went, fact, I met the governor and spoke to the state, state assembly. Yeah, in Atlanta? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we, we spoke to all the state representatives and, uh, you know, it, it was funny, but it was exciting. Uh, I think the funniest thing that happened when I visited San Francisco, uh, you know, we, me and my wife got there and we went in the room and we noticed there was a Christian station on and we yeah. started laughing about yeah. it. So, uh, we went to eat with some of the guys, and uh, I told Brent Jones, I said, Brent, I said, uh, when we got in the room, they, they had a Christian station on, and we were laughing about it. And Brent, Brent started laughing harder, and I was like, 
Well, why are you laughing hard? He said, there's just one Christian station in this area. <laughs> so they must have did a lot of work trying to find that station. Well, did I heard that when you toured the Cleveland facility that Art Modell banned profanity through the whole locker room, that nobody could curse, watch your language, that, that Reggie was, did you ever hear that? No, well, I heard about them, but I, nobody cursed when I was there, so. <laughs> well, now, what convinced you to come here to Green Bay? I mean, the tradition here, did that mean something to you? It, it ended up meaning something to me, but at the last minute. Uh, when I visited here, I remember, uh, you know, this was just a drop-by from yeah. Detroit. I mean, I didn't want to come up here. I wanted to go on home because I was tired yeah. of the traveling. And uh, there was a snowstorm here uh, and in Detroit, and they had no more flights going to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, Green Bay. So uh, the Packers sent a private plane, and when we left, I was impressed with the whole organization because they gave me what they had. Yeah. You know, it, was, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't elaborate. It wasn't enormous, it just gave me what they had. And uh, so I was flying back and I told uh, uh, my agent, I said, man, I said, uh, if I sound the Packers, it'll shock the world. And I said, no, there ain't no way I'm gonna sound the Packers. <laughs> so, you know, uh, really. Uh, so that went through your mind? That it it you, went through my yeah. mind. And uh, really, I thought I was going to San Francisco. And, uh, and I remember pr really praying about it. And I thought God had actually spoke to me about going to San Francisco. So I was excited about it when Washington came in with a low office. So I was like, we're going to Frisco. And uh, so I talked to my guy, and they said, we can't. And I'm like, why? He said, well, it's rumored that you'll get cut uh, after two years because of the salary cap. And I talked to uh, Ronnie Lott and a few other guys, and they were talking to me about, you know, the situation, some of the situations. And I was extremely confused. So I went downstairs, and I started praying. And, and I, I mean, I was crying because I wanted to make the right decision because I already made it uh, public. I wanted to go one where God wanted me to go, and two where there was an inner city. And Green Bay like confused inner, inner city? Yeah. Green Bay confused me because Green Bay is not a big city. don't have a, a, a lot of major problems mm -hmm. in the inner city. and don't have, really, it has a small inner city. And uh, so while I was down there praying, uh, you know, Green Bay gave me the best offer. And while I was down there praying, God asked me something. And it wasn't like he said, Reggie. <laughs> it was just in my mind. He said, uh, what are they calling Green Bay now? I said, well, they call them the San Francisco of the East because of the offense. He said, well, what do they call the offense? I said, the West Coast offense. He said, where did the head coach, the offensive coordinator, and the defensive coordinator come from? He said, well, I said, they all came from San Francisco. He said, that's right, I want you to go to Green Bay. Yeah. And I was like, well, wait, wait a minute, now why didn't you just tell me? And he said, because I had to get you on your knees. I had to get you crying to make the right decision. I had to get you before me. And once I knew that, I, I felt so comfortable about the decision I made. And it didn't have all to do with the money. It just had to do with, I knew that that's what God had said to Look, this story wasn't God or the money that led him to Green Bay, has always been greeted with a degree of skepticism from fans and media alike. Bottom line, in April of 1993, White signed a four-year, $17 million contract, at that time making him the highest-paid defensive player in NFL history. The Packers won a bidding war with Washington and San Francisco, and it changed the perception of Green Bay as a place where players would want to go. But there's a much bigger issue going on here than just did God guide White to Green Bay. Reggie White had brought a class action lawsuit that was settled in February of 1993, which essentially began the salary cap free agent era in the National Football League, changing the landscape of player movement forever. When we come back, Reggie and Steve talk about winning the Super Bowl and whether or not that finally satisfied the future Hall of Famer. Stay tuned. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your teen requested a ride, but this time not from you. It's through their Uber teen account. You drive your teenager around a lot to their friend Jacob's house, their other friend Jake's house, to James's, to Jaden's, to Jalen's, to... Uh, Mom, this is Jake's house, not Jacob's. Now with an Uber teen account, your teen can request a ride under your supervision. They'll ride with a highly rated driver, and with live trip tracking, you'll follow along the whole ride to their friends' houses that all sound the same. Add your teen to your Uber account today. See app for details. Bye, Mom. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Welcome back. Remember those great NFC teams in the 1990s, all those terrific rivalry games? It seemed that the Packers were always knocking on the door. In Reggie White's first three seasons in Green Bay, 1993, 94, and 95, they lost to Dallas in the playoffs, either in the NFC Championship game or the divisional round. It seemed that Dallas always had their number. In 1996, head coach Mike Holmgren and the Packers seemed poised to take that next step but they suffered some mid-season adversity. But it was that adversity that Reggie White points to as one of the keys to getting over the championship hump. All right, now we're, we're in Green Bay. Was there a game last year where, during the regular season, that you thought, we're going to go all the way? The team is finally at the level where I thought it could be? Well, I think really in the Detroit game, we, we have pretty much lost all our receivers. And to see the resilience that some, you know, we, we, Mike and some of the other guys really started challenging guys who were going to finally be given an opportunity. And a lot of the young guys stepped up. And, uh, you know, and I knew during that process, hey, man, if these guys can, if we can hold on for a couple more weeks, you know, we get a lot of the guys back that we had injured. And once they came back, I knew then, man, you know, if we keep doing the things we're doing, nobody can beat us. Now, before the NFC Championship game, did Mike pull you aside and just talk to you personally before that, that game, before you played the Panthers, uh, and say anything to you and challenge you specifically before that game? Well, he, he pretty much told me that, uh, that if we was going to win, it was, it, in many respects, it was going to be up to me. Uh, that, uh, you know, I had to go out and do uh, the things that I'm, I'm good at doing in order to inspire the other guys. And, uh, of course, during that time, the Carolina, when we played them, they did a lot to make sure I didn't make any plays. And, uh, you know, but he, he pretty much put a challenge to him. And I think that that challenge pretty much uh, came about when the Super Bowl came. And, uh, you know, and I, I mean, it was, an, it was an exciting opportunity, but it was, it, was, it was exciting to the point where, you know, Mike still felt confident in me that if I could go out and do the things I needed to do, that it can, it can really filter throughout the whole team. Now, when a super, a lot of fans don't realize this, but usually after the Super Bowl, you don't see the films of that game, that season's over. 
if you had seen the films of the Super Bowl, how would you critique your performance? Well, in the first half, I, I think they, they, they put a good pl- game plan together because we expected them to run a lot, and they play action us to death. So because of that, I mean, it, the one thing, it was hot in the dome, and that smoke was killing us, you know, yeah. from all the activities. And, uh, you know, so it was like, to be honest with you, when we stepped out there and when we got through the warm-ups and stuff and all that smoke was in there, you were like, okay, am I dreaming? <laughs> You know, you think you're dreaming. I thought I was dreaming for a minute because really I couldn't believe it. I finally made it to a championship game and then have all this smoke. You know, when you have dreams, you see all this mist and stuff. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I felt real sluggish. And I remember going to the sideline really uh, after they had run the touchdown in the third quarter. And uh, I told Eugene Robinson, I said, man, my legs are not doing nothing. I feel like I'm running in mud or something. And Eugene quoted Isaiah 40, 31 to him. It says, They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with the wings of eagles. They shall run and not get tired. They shall walk and not get weary. In the next series, I come out and get two straight sacks. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, I felt that my strength was renewed, and Eugene played a great part in that. Uh, but it was exciting to finally be there. And what was that quote again? Uh, Isaiah 40, 31. They that mount up with wings of eagles. Uh, uh, they that, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not get tired. Uh, weary, and they shall walk and not get tired. Now, another shot that we have that I wanted your... We have a shot of you at the end of the Super Bowl with holding up that trophy, running around on the field. What was going through your mind at that time? Well, the reason I did it must that, have been a thousand yeah, things. It, it was. First, to finally, be, be, to finally win a championship. I've never won a championship on any level. To finally win one. And, uh, and not just to finally win one, I was, I was excited about that, but I wanted to run around that field with the trophy to let the Packer fans know that, hey, it has been a long time for you, and you deserve this just as much as we do. I, I don't think that there are fans in the country that support their team as much as the Green Bay Packer fans, and they're the best in the world. And uh, I wanted to hold that up not only for, you know, us having the opportunity to win it and me finally being on the team to win one, but to let them know, hey, you guys are the original champions. Now we're bringing this back to you, and you deserve it just as much as we do. When you look back at your career, if we were going to go through the NFL Films Library and somebody told you, Reggie, you got to pick out one play, and this is going to be, I'll make it easier for you, one play or one game, that this is the concise resume of Reggie White's career. Could you pick a one play or one game that we put in a space capsule and send up there for the next millennium? One play. Uh, there's a few plays I can pick out. Okay. Uh, but I guess one play is, uh, you know, a defensive lineman's dream is always... Touchdown against the Redskins, right? Exactly. Okay, okay, we got that one. <laughs> Let's have another one. What, what about... Uh, let me see. I, I think, you know, the plays that I, I you know, like really looking at is, is, you know, and being a power player... Uh, one, to me, the most awesome move that there is is a club move. What's I mean, that? That's What's when you, well, that was on my first sack. That's what I did to Max Lane, is I uh, clubbed him and went inside. So What's the difference between a club and a head slap, though? Well, uh, a head slap's illegal. A head slap is yeah. illegal. A head slap is in the head. A club, a club. Move, so what, how do you club? It's, it's almost like a hip toss. It's a, you know, you get your arms up. Yeah. You either get your hand up under the armpit of a guy yeah. and sling him. I mean, mm-hmm. you that's literally throw him. And to be honest with you, Howie Long was the first guy I've ever seen do that. Really? And it's the most awesome move I've ever seen. But what it is is that usually when I do it, uh, I run up the field, and I try to let the guy see it. And once he gets close to me, you get your arm and, and you throw him. 
you know. It's, 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 you don't bend your arm. You pretty much keep your arm straight and you throw him uh, to the outside and you take the inside move. Now that's, let's say that, that, that sack would be one of the plays that you'd want to put away forever in this time yeah. capsule. How about a game? A game? Uh, since I've been with Green Bay, probably the game that, uh, that I can remember uh, that was on the lines when we played Denver. And I had two sacks at the end of the game uh, to save the game. In uh, Philadelphia, probably, you know, uh, I think the Monday night game we played against uh, uh, the Giants. And uh, when Randall uh, ran and that. that one play with Carl yeah, Banks goes yeah. to tackle him and he steps back. And that was, that was probably one of my, my biggest games yeah. uh, during that time. And, uh, you know, that, that's a game that really stick out in my mind. That was the first Monday night game that I had played. So that, that pretty much sticks out of my mind. Now, when, when, when you watch you play and you hear the broadcasters talk, it just seemed, everything just seems so easy for you, that Reggie is fast and he's powerful and he's so strong. What's the most difficult thing for you to do on a football field? What's the one area that maybe that, that you don't think you're that good at that you still want to improve on or, or, or an area that's really tough for you? Well, you know, I think as, as you get older, I mean, there's always stuff that you find yeah. that uh, – that, that you need to improve on. And, uh, you know, the thing that I always do is that I'm more critical on myself than anybody. So, you know, we can go out and play and I can do, we can run 50 plays and I can do 40 great things, but I'm concentrating on the 10 bad things that I did and trying to improve on those. So uh, the thing that I know is that I realize that the older you get, the harder you have to work. And if you want to keep up with this game, you have to work harder than your opponent. And uh, the thing is, the game has changed so much. People don't realize, you know, people say, well, Reggie White's slowing down. He's not like he used to be. He don't do the things he used to do. Well, there are reasons for that. Now, you let the offensive lineman sit back behind right. the center. So you're taking inches away from the defensive lineman. You're letting the quarterback roll out and throw the ball away when he wants to. So that takes away from your game. So you have to try to get smart and figure out, okay, what can I do to adapt to this, you know? And uh, so, you know... I, to me, I, I have to keep working. And I have to think that, you know, I can have a better year than I had last year. And I, I don't look at really there being a weakness in my game. The things that I look at is that, okay, I, I, I messed up on this play. That means I've got to concentrate more on what I need to do to make sure I'm better on that, that play. And uh, coming into the season, you know, for a defensive lineman and offensive lineman, we don't have one another to work against. So. Yeah. You know, you get scared because you may feel like, oh, man, I, I can lose something if I'm not careful. And uh, so once you get back into the season, you have to start back adapting again. And I think that the thing that's given me an edge is that I know that when I come to training camp, I'm in better shape than anybody. And that, that really keeps me, keeps me over the top. After all that you've achieved on the, on the football field, Reggie, do you finally feel fulfilled or do you have any other goals that, that, you, I, that you want to achieve? I thought I would be fulfilled. Uh, after you know, you after the Super, Super Bowl. But uh, once the Super Bowl was over, I realized something. My career is not over. And I remember what I told the players uh, coming into uh, the season last year. Don't celebrate your career. Don't celebrate a great game. Don't celebrate being all pro one or two years. Don't celebrate none of that until your career is over. Then you can look back on it and you can reflect on it. Then you can celebrate. And uh, the thing I realized, I realized, hey man, this is what I told the guy. My career is not over. It's great to be a champion, finally, but the thing is my career is not over. And when my career is over, then I can look back on it, then I can, I can uh, c celebrate then, but not now. 
What's interesting to me about this conversation and so many others like it are two themes that seem common amongst almost all great players. They always obsess about the plays they didn't make rather than celebrate the ones they did. That mentality, the losses hurt more than the wins feel good, has driven many a player or coach out of the game. Note Parcells, comma, Bill. But Reggie channeled that inner dialogue as a path to constant improvement. In fact, I always marveled at this key attribute of Reginald Howard White. He was always seeking to learn. When we come back, Reggie and Steve get into some of those life lessons, how Reggie gained toughness as a child, and what was really important to him off the field, helping those in need. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your teen requested a ride, but this time not from you. It's through their Uber teen account. You drive your teenager around a lot to their friend Jacob's house, their other friend Jake's house, to James's, to Jaden's, to Jalen's, to... Uh, Mom? This is Jake's house, not Jacob's. Now with an Uber teen account, your teen can request a ride under your supervision. They'll ride with a highly rated driver, and with live trip tracking, you'll follow along the whole ride to their friends' houses that all sound the same. Add your teen to your Uber account today. See app for details. Bye, Mom. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. Reggie White and Brett Favre on the surface couldn't be any more different. Sure, they were both from the South, but in 1993, Reggie was 32 years old, the venerable Minister of Defense, and Favre was only 24 and undoubtedly in his carefree phase in Green Bay. Now, the bond they had as teammates was undeniable. They were perfect complementary pieces leaders on offense and defense. But when they initially met in 1992, they were on opposing teams. I want to go back to the Eagles again. When you were playing with the Eagles, did you ever play against Brett? Uh, yes. What do you remember about, about that? I remember we played them, and I mean, they, we came to Milwaukee yeah. and played them, and uh, they, they were moving the ball on us. I mean, they were running the ball up and down the field on us. Kind of, we were shocked, to be honest with you. And uh, I remember uh, coming around the corner hitting Brett. And when he hit the ground, I knew I had separated his shoulder. And uh, he went to the sideline, and I told the guy, I said, he threw. And uh, next thing I know, he come running back out, you know, with his shoulder and, uh, and, and beat us. And uh, I remember, hey, man, this guy's going to be good because he's got a tough mental attitude. And, uh, you know, I was just, I was extremely impressed with what he did. And I found out later that he had actually went to the sideline and told Mike that he had separated his shoulder. And he was asking Mike to only let him throw the ball to his right side because he couldn't wow. throw it to his left because of his shoulder. So uh, 
I thought in my mind, man, I would, I would love to play with a guy like that. This is an example of what's so interesting when you look back on an interview from 20 years ago with new information and perspective. I believe this eerie link between Favre and White has really been overlooked. So in 1992, Reggie separated Brett's shoulder. Favre took Vicodin to ease that pain. But when he injured his ankle a few weeks later, Favre became fully hooked. In fact, it wasn't until doctors treated Favre, who had had a seizure, that they discovered his addiction. And it wasn't until 1996 that Favre finally sought treatment, spending 75 days as an inpatient in the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. For a man like Reggie White, who was by nature a helper and a healer, his role in injuring Favre was about to come full circle. When Brett was going through all of the, the, when he came out of the detox center and everything, did you say anything to him about how much the, you, you, the support, or did you talk to Brett during the season? Uh, uh, was, what, what was your relationship like during, with Brett? Oh, me and Brett got a great relationship. And, you know, we talked uh, uh, before he went in, when the day he made the announcement, uh, you know, I called and, and we ran each other down and we talked. And, uh, you know, he, he said that he wanted to really whoop the problem that he had. And uh, the, the thing I admire about him so, so much is that uh, he knows how to take adversity and, and making an advantage to himself and for himself and for the people around him. And uh, that's what he did last year. He took his adversity and he turned it around and, and it motivated him uh, to be great. And, uh, you know, I mean, you have to admire a person like that because some people let adversity get to him and it ended up taking him downhill, but Brett allowed it to elevate him uh, to another level. Could you describe the one moment in your life when you really needed the most courage if there was one moment in your life where you really had to look down in yourself, look down into yourself and really draw out all the courage that you had, is there one moment that stands out in your mind? No, there's not really one moment. I mean, uh, I think the thing that helped me with really building my courage up was my high school coach. Uh, I named Robert Pulliam. He, uh, he taught me what toughness and, and having courage was all about. And it helped me in my spiritual life. Uh, I, don't, I don't think this guy realized how much he really helped me. And what he used to do is he used to, he used to uh, at times, wrestle me. And he would get me down, and he would hold me down. This and was your I, high school this coach? This was my high school coach. And if I laid there, he would keep me down until I cried. And uh, when we played basketball, he would, he would do things to me to make me cry. And I remember one time we played basketball, and this guy was 6'2", about 280. He played at the University of Tennessee. I was going to ask you how big he was. Yeah, he's he's going to hold man. down and make you cry. I mean. And uh, he... Uh, he uh, uh, elbowed me, and I went in the back and started crying. And some of my classmates were like, well, How old were you? I was like, uh, I think, 17 years old. That's kind of old to be crying, uh, don't you think? But no, he, I mean, he really got after me. Yeah. And, uh, but he would do things to me to really make, frustrate me. And, uh, you know, and he, like when we wrestled, as I mentioned, he would get me down. We had two other coaches that were just as big as he was. And every time I would get over on him, they would pull me off. So that got me frustrated. I get to crying and teary eyed. And uh, so, he elbowed me real hard, and I went back there, and I was, like, tired of him doing this to me. So i never forget it. He came in the back, and I thought he was going to apologize to me. And he looked at me in the eyes, and he said, if you think that I'm going to stop, you can forget it. He said, until you start fighting me back, I'm going to keep whooping your tail. And I'm like, man. So I started fighting him back. And, uh, you know, in, that, in the last two wrestling matches we had, I won. Yeah. And uh, when we played basketball, I mean, I would throw him around. And... Uh, <laughs> But that do you I, ever talk to him now? Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I, and I didn't realize what he did until I signed here. 
I mean, I really did. Until I signed here, I like, you know what? He, he taught me how to be tough, and he taught me how to have courage. And uh, I called him up and thanked him for it. And uh, he told me something interesting. He said, you know, I called every one of your mothers, every one of your parents, uh, and I asked every one of your parents, could I do to uh, their uh, sons what I did to you? He said, your mom was the only one that said yes. <laughs> Probably the only thing Reggie was known for more than football was his spirituality. He was ordained at age 17 and spent the majority of his time not sacking quarterbacks, helping others, and preaching to those who would listen. And speaking of listening, I remember back in early 1997, the day after the Packers had won the NFC Championship over Carolina, were getting ready to head to Super Bowl 31. I was doing an interview with Reggie the next day. He walks into our room, that larger-than-life figure, and he looks at me and says in that gravelly voice, they're gonna have to listen to me now. Reggie was confident he was gonna win a ring, but he was almost as exultant that he was going to have a pulpit in front of the world's media. This idea of taking action over preaching ideology played a big role in the way Reggie and his wife, Sarah, would minister in the community. Now, when you look at your career, this is a tough question, and all the good things that you've done with the community and, and with your teammates and all of, can you think back on one good deed that you might have overlooked, and now you look back and you think, I should have done that, I, I, I real, and, and you feel a little guilty about not doing this, this one good deed? Well, not, not really one good deed. I, I tell you the thing that I learned in Philadelphia, though, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of street ministry, me and Sarah, and we would take the kids with us and some of the ball players, And uh, we did it for two years. And uh, every time I would leave, I felt a void. I felt like there's something, I didn't accomplish something. Something was missing. And I felt that God had called us into these communities to really speak a word to the people in the communities. And uh, every time I left, I was like, okay, we preach, but there's something missing. And when I got up here, I, I, God made me realize what was missing. You know, we went in, we preached, we told the people what they needed. We were trying to encourage the people to change their life for Christ's sake. And the thing that God showed me is that we met no needs. You know, we didn't help the drug dealer get off drugs. We didn't help the, uh, uh, the drug addict get off drugs. We didn't help the game banger stop banging. We didn't help the prostitute to stop selling herself. We wouldn't meet no one's needs. And the thing in these communities that you have to realize is the reason that people are responding to crime because crime is paying them. Uh, and they have no other alternative but to get involved with that. I talked to a lot of young gang members and every one of them will tell you the reason I'm doing what I'm doing because we have nothing to do. And I think that, that that revolutionized my thinking to the point where I realized that the resources that I have, I have to use them to try to create opportunities for other people. And uh, you know, just realizing that, I mean, it made me feel bad. And in some respects, it made me feel guilty, but I, I, had to be, I had to be brought to a point in my life where I realized, okay, this is what needs to be done. You know, people getting tired of being preached to, they're getting tired of being taught that. They need to see some action. They need some people that will really stand up and fight for them and care for them and create opportunities for them. If you could go back to school and take one subject that you didn't, what, what would it be? Uh, Knowing what you know now. I probably would have, uh, uh, you know, I, I was interested in history, but I probably would have gotten uh, uh, taken African-American history. Uh, and the reason I would have, I, a lot of people, and I've had a reporters ask me a question, why don't black athletes go back and help their people? And there's a simple answer to that question. When your, your heritage and your history has been stripped from you, you don't appreciate yourself, let alone appreciate your neighbor. 
And uh, when you look at the Jewish community, they, they, they strictly teach their uh, history and their heritage. They teach about the Holocaust. Uh, one well, like Hebrew I, school. Right. You go, like a, like and one thing school. I noticed about Jews, uh, Jews, uh, uh, in many respects, now be careful. Distrust each other almost more than anybody. <laughs> but the thing that I, I, I respect about them, even though that they distrust each other in many respects, when something comes together for the community, they come together to try to benefit the community. And you know, you look at that and you say, hey, you know, you don't have to like each other, but you know, when it comes to helping one another, you know, let's let's come together and help one another. And I think that that's the thing that I've seen our community fail in because our history and our heritage hadn't been uh, taught to us. Uh, when we go to public schools, we're not taught black history, you know. I had a young uh, kid tell my pastor one time, he's a straight A student, 16 years old, quit school. My pastor asked him, why did you quit school? He said, well, since I was six, I've been in school. He said, I've never saw a black face in any of the history books uh, that I've read that contributed to anything. And he said, I know that my people invented something, they did something to contribute to America. And, uh, so when that's the case, you have a lot of our kids that's just not interested in the American education system. Now, when you, when you go out and you talk to kids like that, Reggie, and they look at you, what do you want them to feel when they see Reggie White? I want them to know that I'm real. I want them to feel God's presence. I want them to feel like, hey, man, this guy don't think he's more important than I am. You know, I mean, I've talked to kids uh, particularly Milwaukee, that are the young game bangers, and we sit down and we talk. They talk about me. I talk about them. You know, we joke around. I, I want them to be able to touch me and say, "Hey, man, this guy, this guy don't think he's better than I am." You know, he 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 puts himself on the same level that I am. Uh, at times, I I have a friend who brings some of the kids up to spend a night uh, with us and just hang out with my kids because I want my kids to see that side too, so they won't grow up to think that they're better than anybody else. I want them to see what other people go through and what other people experience and uh, for them to appreciate what they got and to try to use what they have to benefit other people's lives. So, you know, I just want people to feel, hey man, this guy is real. He's not a phony. You know, he don't think he's better than nobody else. He's trying to help me. So if he's gonna try to help me, then I need to try to help myself. Do you have any role models when you were growing up? Did you have a role model? Uh, well, my high school coach, Okay. Uh, was my male, he was my role model. Uh, in professional sports, it was guys like Dr. J, yeah. you know, Bobby Jones. I mean, baseball is Hank Aaron, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but Doc, he just had so much class, man. And I was like, you know, that's that's how I want to be. You know, I want I want to I want to I want to have class just like that man. How about uh, Muhammad Ali? Oh, he was everybody's hero. You can know? you still imitate him? Yeah, I'm the greatest of all time. People know I'm pretty. I, I can still fight. They say I'm old. I'm not old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got it. Two years after Steve's Lambeau Field interview, Reggie retired from the Packers. He returned for one season with the Panthers in 2000. But then White's life took a turn as he set out on a quest to find his purpose. He had an idea for a religious-themed amusement park, but that never came to fruition. And after countless hours preaching and millions of dollars spent supporting the church during his 15-year playing career, after his retirement, he began to seriously question the word he had been spreading. He stopped preaching and never set foot in a church again. Remember I told you he was constantly learning? White spent endless hours studying Hebrew to be able to translate the original Old Testament himself. He had a Hebrew teacher and even traveled to Israel. I asked Sarah one day what religion Reggie considered himself, and she said 
He was a seeker of the truth. I remember when my phone rang early in the morning, December 26, 2004, with the news that Reggie White had died. He had passed away in North Carolina at the age of 43, died in his sleep. One of the reasons? He suffered from sleep apnea. In 2006, he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. His wife, Sarah, delivered an incredible induction speech. And as someone who was in attendance, let me tell you, it was one of the most difficult days I can remember. I know how magnified that was for Sarah and their children, Jeremy and Jacolia. Reggie White was a great football player, but he was also someone I considered a friend. I've enjoyed listening to him talk to Steve, and I certainly hope you did as well. Next week, we finally switch back to offense. When I dig out Steve's interview with Dan Marino that took place just months after the Hall of Fame quarterback retired from the Dolphins. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea Kramer. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Your teen requested a ride, but this time not from you. It's through their Uber teen account. You drive your teenager around a lot to their friend Jacob's house, their other friend Jake's house, to James's, to Jaden's, to Jalen's, to... Uh, Mom, this is Jake's house, not Jacob's. Now with an Uber teen account, your teen can request a ride under your supervision. They'll ride with a highly rated driver, and with live trip tracking, you'll follow along the whole ride to their friends' houses that all sound the same. Add your teen to your Uber account today. See app for details. Bye, Mom. Turns out, a delightfully clean home can make for a delightful start to the day. At Mrs. Myers, everything they make is inspired by the garden. With plant-derived and other thoughtfully chosen ingredients, their cleaning products smell like a dream and work like the Dickens, leaving your home sparkly clean and your to-do list tackled in no time. Goodness, there's no better feeling than that. Mrs. Myers, rooted in goodness. Visit mrsmyers.com today.